Josh Hawley is one of four major candidates seeking to become Missouri's next attorney general. But he'll have to get through an acrimonious Republican primary for that to happen. The Columbia Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six five, five, four, four three, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And joining us all the way from beautiful Columbia, Missouri. But he's live in the studio. But he's live in the studio we have as our special guest. Josh Hawley. I'm a candidate for Attorney General. Uh, Thank you very much for being here. Just for a note for our listeners, we were actually very close to getting every major statewide candidate on their show Teresa Hensley, the Democratic candidate for attorney general, one of the Democratic right. candidates for attorney general, is scheduled to be on in a couple of weeks. So we're thrilled to have you. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. I've heard so much about the the show. <laughs> yeah, we're for the junkies. So as most of our listeners know, um, Holly is a Republican. We had his rival, um, Kurt Schaefer, on several weeks ago. A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago. But um, we wanted to know a little bit more about your background. This is your first time ever running for any office, but I I know that to be attorney general, you had to probably get a law degree and do other things before you got to this point. Is that a fair assumption at this? That's a fair assumption, and you're absolutely right. I've I've never run for office before. This is my first time in politics at all. My background is in constitutional law rather than politics. Uh, And uh, I'm running for attorney general because I think we should have a constitutional lawyer as attorney general and not just another professional politician. But let me go back a little earlier than that. I'm a Missouri boy. I grew up in Lexington, Missouri. Where did you go to high school? I went to I went to high school at Rockhurst High School in Kansas City. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It was a commute. So I drove back and forth. Lexington is a town of about 4,000 people uh, an hour east of Kansas City. In Lafayette right on the County. Yeah, right. exactly right. Yeah. There was a Civil War battle there. Well, didn't Ike Skelton come yeah, from Yeah, he's from That Lexington. was his hometown. That so, was his hometown. So did you all, like, celebrate him? Was he, like, the town hero, basically? Because, <laughs> I mean, for all seriousness, he's one of the most influential and important Missouri congressmen ever. I will tell you, I learned about Ike uh, in grade school in civics class. Uh, no lie, he was part of the curriculum. And I can still remember having his the teacher passing around his picture and saying, and this guy lives here in our town. He's from here. I highly suggest our listeners read his his memoir that was published shortly before he passed away. But, can, but continue. Well, so I grew up in Lexington, and I went to high school at Rockhurst High School in Kansas City. And uh, then I went off to college. Uh, I went to Stanford University, and then I went to law school at, at Yale. And um, the first lawyer in my family, which is not really a point of distinction in my family, uh, that's uh, the legal profession is not necessarily held in the highest estimation. I come from a family of farmers on one side and business folks on the others. But I went to law school because I was passionate about and impassionate about constitutional law. And I wanted to learn how to be a constitutional lawyer. That's what I wanted to do with my career. So after I graduated from law school, I had the chance to work at the United States Supreme Court. My uh, uh, wife, we weren't married at the time. We worked together there. We got married after that. So we And were who a, did you clerk for? I clerked for Chief Justice John Roberts at the court, which that was a means- great experience. Uh, he was a great boss. What, was there anything particular that you learned from him that you've carried on as, in, as you've 
progressed at the university and now in your campaign? Well, he was an outstanding boss in terms of the way he ran his chambers. He is outstanding at his job of administering the federal court system. You know, part of his role as chief justice is to oversee the administration of the federal court system. He's superb at it, and he is a wonderful man. He's a very decent man. And uh, I don't agree with him all the time on his decisions, but uh, he was a, a fantastic man to work for. And uh, after that, I entered private practice. And from the very beginning of my private practice, it's I focused my practice on defending individuals and businesses and nonprofit groups from the long arm of government, fighting regulation, uh, fighting those who would take away religious liberties. And I've done that in at a, at a major private law firm and then also at a group called the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, where I was uh, counsel right up until I started this campaign. Now, you're, there's a little interesting story about how you ended up at the University of Missouri. Our listeners need to know this. Do you want to? Well, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure actually exactly which story you're thinking of, Joe. You're catching me flat-footed here. Well, Danforth. Oh, sure, sure. So, uh, What Jack- other story is there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was right. I'm thinking maybe you know something I don't know. Something nefarious. <laughs> well, I was thinking, you know, did my wife have a plan to... Well, no, my wife is actually a New Mexico girl, and so uh, she blames uh, Jack Danforth for uh, uh, encouraging us to come home to Missouri. Now, the real truth is that I met Senator Danforth when I was still in law school. We went to the same law school, and I met him when I was a third-year student. And he said from the beginning, from then, he said, well, I sure hope you're planning to come home to Missouri to practice. And I said, well, Senator, I, I want to practice constitutional law. And he said, well, you can do that in Missouri. And he started this relentless campaign uh, to encourage me. And then when I got married, my and wife Stanford. to come back. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and he ultimately succeeded. And, uh, and then he encouraged me also to consider public service. And, and that's part of the reason I'm running now. It's interesting. And we're going to get into the political imaginations of the primary in a second. But uh, former Senator Danforth did a couple of fundraisers for Kurt Schaefer when he was running for Senate in 2008 and 2012. I believe Schaefer, and I don't have the article in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing, said that Danforth was one of the reasons he got into politics in the first place. But I believe Danforth endorsed you over over Schaefer, which I think has caused a little bit of consternation. Is what, is, what has been that type of dynamic, basically? Well, I'm proud to have Senator Danforth's endorsement and support as a guy who was the attorney general yes. of the state of Missouri Correct. and who knows how to do that job, knows what it takes. And by the way, who made a central part of his work as attorney general cleaning up corruption in Jefferson City. And that needs to happen again. It's every bit as bad now in Jefferson City as it was back in 1968 when Jack Danforth went there. So I am I feel very privileged to have that support. Uh, he knows what it takes to to get the job done and uh, to have people of his caliber behind me is a great privilege. Is there anything in particular in Jeff City you want to yes, aim at? Yes, absolutely. I, th- I think the, the pay-to-play culture overall, where we have a capital that is overrun by special interest groups and lobbyists, unlimited gifts, of course, as you know, who can, uh, lobbyists can give anything to legislators, they can accept in any amount, and the Attorney General's office has major ethics issues too. I mean, Chris Coster has been investigated. The New York Times has reported on his exchange of campaign money in exchange for canceling investigations of companies who his office was looking into. This should not happen. And so what I proposed is to create a public corruption unit 
within the Office of the Attorney General that will coordinate with local law enforcement and federal law enforcement to investigate and prosecute public corruption crimes. I've also said that we will institute, I will institute a new office policy. I won't wait for the legislature. I will not accept lobbyist gifts. I will not allow my staff to accept lobbyist gifts. We will not accept campaign contributions from companies who are named in investigations or anybody named in an investigation. We will not accept a campaign contributions from folks who are trying to get a bid, a contract, have competitive bids with the state. And we'll do all of that. I'll do all of that as a matter of policy and challenge the legislature to follow suit. When you didn't mention campaign contribution limits as, as one of the corrupting influences, which has been an argument by many Democrats and Republicans. I mean, what's your thought about capping campaign contributions? Because I know that both you and Senator Schaefer and the two Democrats have taken large donations in this race. Is that a problem that should be fixed? You know, I, I don't think that free speech is a problem. And I tend to think that the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, has gotten it about right here when they say that in our modern culture, and this has been the court doctrine for f- almost 40 years now, Political contributions are a form of speech. They're a way to participate in the democratic process. And so I'm, I am pro-speech. I am pro-participation. I think the problem is when you have the nexus of unlimited contributions joined with unlimited lobbyist gifts, unlimited lobbyist access. In the AG's office, oftentimes lobbyists who come in to talk about clients, they don't even have to register as lobbyists. That also should change. We will make them register uh, when I'm attorney general. So I think it is the focus on the special interest lobbyist access that needs to be addressed. And that, to me, is the real root of the problem. Now, um, you're also proposing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, to set up a unit that would actually focus on some of the federal stuff, which then will lead me to the case that has been attracting most of the attention as far as your major campaign theme. Can you talk about why you would set that up? Basically, it'd be for you to challenge various federal regulations or laws that you think are overreach. Am I correcting? That's exactly right. I think we need to have a federalism unit in the office of the attorney general, probably headed by the solicitor general in the office, that will focus on challenging in court federal regulations that are unsupported by by statute or other authorization that will challenge uh, uh, rules during the rulemaking process as the federal government issues them, that will provide congressional testimony, and that will in general fight back on every front against what I regard as an unprecedented wave of federal overreach and overregulation in the last decade. And now, would this, okay, you have gained a lot of, attracted a lot of attention over the last few years because of your involvement in the Hobby Lobby case. Right. Okay, which you can talk about. But would your unit that you're proposing to set up, would that have been involved? Let's say you'd been attorney general and this came to pass. Would you plan on using that unit to have argued uh, in favor of Hobby Lobby's position, or how would how would that come about? Yeah, I think that one of the things the unit should do, and other states, by the way, have, have done this uh, to, with great success. It's been wonderful for their states and for the business people of their state, the citizens of their state, the farmers. One of the things that the unit should do is file friend-of-the-court briefs, amicus briefs, in major lawsuits that are of importance to the people of the state of Missouri. Hobby Lobby is a prime example. We had, if memory serves, a number of AGs and states who supported us in that case. Another good example is the Little Sisters of the Poor case, recently adjudicated by the Supreme Court. 
Uh, you know, that's a case in which the Missouri Attorney General, Chris Coster, was asked to join in with the coalition of states on behalf of the Little Sisters who are being forced by the Obama administration to violate their church's teaching just to continue their ministry, nonprofit ministry, and Chris Coster refused. Now, if I were Attorney General, it would have been the opposite outcome. We would have led the fight there. Do you want to explain in brief what your role was in the Hobby Lobby case? Because actually Schaefer has challenged yeah. some characterizations. We want you to set the record straight, obviously. Right. Sure, sure. Well, it was a privilege to be a counsel, an attorney for David and Barbara Green of Hobby Lobby, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, my law firm. Uh, we were the, the attorneys uh, for David and Barbara. I was one of their counsel. Uh, we took that case all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and we won. It's the only case defeating Obamacare at the United States Supreme Court, and it stands for a really important principle, and that is when you start a business in our country, you don't give up your First Amendment rights. Okay, now I want to make sure I summarize this right. It's my understanding that basically, if you boil it down to the case in a nutshell, um, Hobby Lobby was challenging having to require to cover contraception or at, least, or at least certain types of contraception in the health care policies that they offered workers. Is that correct? Four, that's right. Four forms of contraception. So there are 20 forms of contraception that are approved by the FDA. The uh, Obamacare under rules issued by the administration, not passed by Congress, but issued by the administration, require all business people of a certain size to pay for all 20 forms of contraception. Uh, David and Barbara Green had a moral and religious objection to four of those that could induce an abortion. And, abortion and the four drugs. are? Uh, the four are two IUDs and then the morning after pill and Ella, sometimes called the week after pill. Yeah. So David and Barbara Green paid for 16 different forms of contraception. They have no objection to contraception. Their objections to abortion, I should make clear. And that's always been the case. And so they had paid for contraception in their health care plans for years before the ACA. So this was not new. They had no objection to that. It was when they, the administration said, we are going to force you, and I do mean force, because if Hobby Lobby didn't comply, the penalties were $470 million in fines every single year. It bankrupt the company. And so when David and Barbara were put to that choice, they said, we can't in good conscience do that. Just give us a waiver as to these four forms. We'll fund the other 16. And the administration said, no, we're going to make you change your conscience or shut you down. And that's what we went to court to stop. And we did stop it. So I want to talk about another issue, um, which is racial profiling. One of the duties of the attorney general's office is to compile a report every year that shows the traffic stops that uh, certain police departments do and to track if there's any patterns of racial profiling there. This has been a law since 2000. One of the criticisms of this particular law is while it does sometimes highlight bad offenders and that may be enough to make them change their ways beyond just uh, certain penalties for not actually supplying the data, there's not much other enforcement mechanisms. I'm going to play a clip now from State Representative Shamed Dogan, who wants to make that particular law stronger. I think it should be a topic of discussion in both the governor's race and the attorney general's race. Um, because if we want to be seen as a state that's welcome, you know, for everybody, regardless of their racial background or um, any other characteristic, um, if we want to get those negative headlines about Missouri that we keep seeing um, turned into positive headlines, um, I think that combating racial profiling is a perfect way to do that uh, because it shows that we're committed to equal justice for all. 
So I wanted to know if, if you're attorney general, you can't you could maybe do some things on your own to change how that report is done. But what would you want to see changed in that process? Because there seems to be a bipartisan agreement that what's going on isn't working right now. Well, I think I would have to undertake a review of the process as it currently stands and see how the law has been administered since it's been on the books and get a grasp of exactly what the report, I mean, obviously I've seen the report, but how is it being assembled? How is it being put into effect? And then what are the follow-ups? So I think it would be absolutely appropriate to initiate a review of that and uh, t- to see if there are real-world practical steps that can be taken uh, to make uh, the, to make the report more effective. Look, this is something I think that probably needs to happen across the board. One of the other things I want to do as attorney generals initiate a review of state regulations that affect business and innovation in our state, get a handle on what those are, and how can the attorney general's office apply those in a way that is maximally friendly to innovation, entrepreneurship. So I think there's room for, in fact, a need for review of how the office is doing its job and what can be done better. Is there any way you would want to organize the office differently than it is now? Because although a lot of rhetoric in attorney general's races talks about, you know, is is the person running a crime fighter or their experience, really the, the job is, 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 has a heavy managerial aspect to it. And you're going to be basically in charge of a whole bunch of lawyers and a whole bunch of departments. What would you want to change structurally about this? Well, aside department? from the two he's already mentioned. Yeah, aside from the two you've already mentioned. Well, the, the job is actually a job for an appellate lawyer. By that, I mean that most of what the attorney general does when it comes to litigation are cases on appeal. So the attorney general's office prosecutes a small number of cases, nothing compared to our local prosecuting attorneys who bear the brunt uh, and have the, the, the majority of the jurisdiction. What the attorney general's office does is, is it defends cases on appeal, and then it defends the laws of Missouri and uh, the officials of Missouri when necessary and the Constitution of Missouri. And I think I have a background perfectly suited to do that. So I'd like to see, as, as we mentioned a second ago, I'd like to see two new units within the office, a federalism unit, an office, a unit of public corruption. I'd like to see the Solicitor General, uh, his office or her office, beefed up uh, and I think that the Solicitor General should lead the federalism unit. And why is that the case? Because the Solicitor General is the official within the AG's office who leads the defense of Missouri's laws uh, in state and federal court. And more attention needs to be paid to that in this era, I think, of regulatory overreach. Now, what would you, I mean, assuming that your budget doesn't get increased, what would you be cutting? in order to finance those changes or others that you're planning for the office? Well, I think that we can retask. A lot of it can be done by retasking attorneys within the office. I mean, so we can create... I mean, such as? You, well, I mean, I mean of, you know, the, of the nine different divisions within the attorney general's office and the, the lawyers who work there, the 150, 175, depending, lawyers who work there, uh, and that that's just lawyers, not employees. Those lawyers have to look at their caseloads, but can be retasked to new units that will be added to existing offices. You know, so I'm not proposing to 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 grow the power of the attorney general's office. I'm proposing to use it, I hope, in a more effective way, and to use the existing staff in a more effective way. What's become a key issue now, but it's been a key issue in this contest for months, um, is that Senator Schaefer, who is your uh, Republican rival, has challenged the leave that you obtained from the University of Missouri in order to run for office. I wrote about this extensively in a big article several months ago, and people can look on our website and look it up. But since then, there has been a lawsuit filed having to do with obtaining some of the documents. Do you want to talk about how you see this right now? I mean, your perception of what's happening 
Well, I tell you what it is. It's just the latest intimidation technique by my opponent and his allies, who I refer to as the Jefferson City Cartel, who have been attempting to keep me out of uh, this race and to keep any outsider out of Jeff City, any change out of Jeff City. And they've been doing this for months. I mean, we have we know the president of the university has talked about the fact that Senator Schaefer came to him on more than one occasion and pressured him to change university rules and policies in order to keep me, including the leave policy, in order to keep me out of the race. I mean, this is outrageous. So this lawsuit is, is the latest installment in this harassment and intimidation program. It's utterly frivolous. I have turned over all of my emails, documents, my entire hard drive to the University of Missouri the better part of a year ago. They have all of it. I've fully complied with everything I've been asked to do. There's just, there is nothing to this other than the continued attempt to intimidate and harass. Now, before we go any further on this, can you just explain kind of the leave that you're on right now? Because I remember pretty distinctly that there were several other university employees that tried to run for office, like Mike Zweifel, who tried to run for state representative who ha- would have had to take unpaid leave and he didn't end up doing it. What was your situation? Because I want to make sure our listeners are clear about this. Yeah, I'm on unpaid leave and have been uh, from the beginning of the campaign. So my my leave began September 1st and uh, officially under university policy. But I've actually been off the university payroll since May of 2015. Yeah, so from what, you're under, from what you had told me before, your leave was a nine-month leave that, that a- actually during the summer – you're you're not under contract, is that correct, or explain that? It's a 12-month leave. It runs okay. from uh, per university rules, and you're absolutely okay. right. By the way, Jason, this is it's not as if we're inventing the wheel here. I've merely asked for the, the university has specific rules, and I've just complied with their lead policies. Multiple folks who have uh, taught at the university. Um, have run for office before, including the current Secretary of State of Kansas, Chris Kobach, who ran for office multiple times and was employed by the University of Missouri. Uh, So the the leave begins in September of 2015, runs through September 2016, uh, but I'm paid on a nine-month basis. Okay, yeah, that's that's the difference. Go ahead. uh, Right, and so I, I haven't been on the university payroll since May of last year, which was two months before I announced my campaign. When did you find out? that um, Schaefer was trying to make this an issue? Well, I mean, I had, I had heard last summer that, that this was uh, uh, rumblings that uh, before I was even a candidate, that, that there was political interference, that people were trying to pressure the university to change their policies. And I thought, that's just that's ridiculous. I can't imagine this is true. But uh, then the first I had heard of the Tim Wolf uh, letter when he talked about Senator Schaefer's pressure to him was when it was published, uh, whenever that was earlier this winter. Now, are you surprised at all? I mean, the lawyer in this case is uh, Jane Duker. Who's, a, who's the former chief of staff for Democratic Governor Bob Holden. And she's a major re- Democratic activist. I mean, do you feel that the Democrats are involved in this too? or? What? Oh, it appears to be. I, th- I think who's, who, who's involved are, are my opponents and, and, his, and his allies, which are the trial lawyers, the trial bar, who support him very heavily. Senator Schaefer's taken over $100,000 from the trial bar. Uh, and uh, they have been backing his campaign from the first. And so you have, the again, the, the cartel alliance of the establishment, the special interests, uh, Senator Schaefer and, and group. And uh, no, so am I surprised that, that Democrat trial lawyers are involved? Uh, absolutely not. I'm not at all. So I'm going to play a couple of clips now. Now, the first one is going to deal with Senator Schaefer talking about what he feels is your lack of experience for this job. This was on his appearance on the podcast, and then we're going to have our guests respond to it. 
you know, I've been a lawyer in the state of Missouri for 20 years. I'm a former assistant attorney general, a former special assistant U.S. attorney. I've tried civil and criminal cases all over the state of Missouri. And, you know, running against a candidate who, as far as I can tell, has never tried a single case, not only in Missouri, but ever. If you're asking to be the top law enforcement officer of the state of Missouri, you better be able to say that you've tried some cases and put some dangerous criminals behind bars. Because if all you can say is, hey, I've been a college professor who's never tried a case, I think you need to look no further than what Chris Coster did to Ed Martin and, and Mike Gibbons of, hey, here's two guys that may be, you know, good guys, whatever, but they've never done a single thing that actually translates into doing this job. So, well, there's a couple of things to unpack there. Have you ever tried a case? My experience is litigating in the U.S. Supreme Court, federal courts, and state courts on behalf of the Constitution of the United States and against government overreach. I am an appellate lawyer by background. I don't try cases to juries. Um, we argue the law. Uh, we uh, stand up and defend cases on appeal and constitutional cases, and I have done that extensively. I've litigated extensively. And by the way, that is exactly what the attorney's general job is. I think that this uh, Senator Schaefer is saying that I don't have the requisite experience. I mean, look, if you want somebody who's been in politics for 20 years, who started his career with Jay Nixon, he talks about being a prosecutor. What he means is he was an assistant to Jay Nixon. He's never been an elected prosecutor. He was Jay Nixon's assistant for a number of years. And then he went into private practices and he's, and he's been an environmental lawyer. Now, that's perfectly fine. But I think it would be nice if the people of Missouri had somebody in the office who knew how to litigate in federal court in the U.S. Supreme Court. I do. That's what we need in the next attorney general. And I'm ready for it. Now, the second part of his criticism was that if you don't have this prosecutorial experience, and it's going to depend on who the Democratic nominee is. If it's Jake Zimmerman, it's going to be a different situation than if it's Teresa Hensley, who's a former elected prosecutor. But his argument is if you don't have any prosecutorial experience, it's going to leave the Republican nominee vulnerable to attacks from the Democrat. How do you respond to that? That sounds like arguments politicians make all the time. You know, oh, I'm more electable because of this or, or, or my experience. I have passed 15 bills that deal with that. Nobody knows what that means. Look, we need to elect a, a person who is ready to do the job. The next attorney general of Missouri should be a constitutional lawyer. That is a fundamental part of what this office does. It's an area where we need help, where we need reinforcements and leadership. And I am ready to do that. And I'm ready to take that argument, that campaign to the people of Missouri. The second clip is is about your leave than that situation. So we'll play that right now. So, you know, I don't know why the university uh, picks and chooses when they want to enforce their rules. Uh, it's no different than their statement recently that they're actually going to enforce their rule now, which has been on the books a long time against disruptive protests on campus. You know, I think sometimes the university treats its rules more as suggestions than actual rules. But, you know, they need to follow their rules. And that's been my position all along. But regardless, you know, there's nothing in the rules that allow for somebody to take a year and a half off uh, to do nothing but run for office. But, hey, if that's if that's how they want to uh, choose to run the rules, then that's what they're going to do. You talked about this a little before, but I just want you to respond to it out of fairness. Well, you know, I think it's a, it's a little rich for Senator Schaefer to be talking about following the rules when, again, there are very serious allegations that he attempted to interfere with the university and get the university to change their rules in order to benefit his own political career. 
you know, that is the only allegation I'm aware of out there having to do with rules. And the other thing I will say is there's only one candidate who has been on a public salary during this campaign. It's not me. It's Senator Schaefer. I mean, he has been paid while he's been a member of the legislature with tax dollars. I have not been. And as to the change of the rules, I have complied from day one with the university's procedures. I've never asked for a change in procedure. I've never been asked if I wanted a change in procedure. The rules are right there written down for everybody to see. They always are what they have been. And again, lots of folks have have done this uh, before. So at this point, what do you see as the most, I mean, when you're on the stump and you and he have been in a number of joint uh, appearances, what seems to be the most salient issue as the two of you are appealing right now to Republican voters? Re- Republican voters. Well, I think that Republican voters are sick and tired of professional politicians and the Jefferson City cartel. They just are. And they are they want they know that our whole government is a mess from top to bottom and they want to clean it out and start over. And I completely and wholly agree. And the other thing is they want someone who is going to stand up for the Constitution of the United States and for the people of Missouri. And that's exactly what I want to do as Attorney General. So I think the contrast between the two of us is significant. Now, whoever wins, is going to, they're going to be um, facing a new governor and a new uh, president. So some of the, if you're Attorney General and you have this uh, federal union federal unit, how are you going to be dealing with whatever new policies may be coming down from the federal government? I mean, Obamacare, like it or not, is argue, many believe it's probably here to stay in some form. If Trump wins, it may not. But I'm just interested in your take on how you would handle the office depending on which um, presidential candidate ends up being the president. Well, I know that if Hillary Clinton ends up as president, we're going to have a lot to do because her her vision is exactly like that of President Obama's, which is to continue this dramatic overreach by unelected bureaucrats. But look, it's not really going to change. My mission and vision for the office won't change if, if Trump is elected, because I think we need vigilance against the federal government and federal regulators, especially unelected regulators, no matter what. And so if we have a Trump administration, whose bureaucrats continue to issue this torrid, this torrent of regulations that burden our farms, that burden our families and our churches, we will stand up and fight against those as well. If Trump becomes president and somehow manages to push through his idea about banning Muslims from the United States, would that be something you would sue over? Because there have been a lot of people who have constitutional problems with banning somebody from coming into the country due to their religion. Would that be something you would consider suing over? Well, here's what I think needs to happen on that score, and that is I think we need to focus on the Syrian refugees and the the hard evidence that we have that the refugee uh, stream has been infiltrated by ISIS terrorists and other affiliated groups. And I do not support, and I think we need to stop any resettlement of those refugees, that refugee class, until we have a security program in place that can provide verifiable uh, background checks on these individuals. And if that means that I have to do what the Attorney General of Texas has done and say I'm going to go to court to stop the federal government from pursuing resettlement policies until there's a background, a, a creditable background check in place, then I will do it. Now, what's going to be, if you're the nominee and you're going to be going and you said you don't know who your rival is going to be, does the issue become whoever the Democratic rival is or does the issue become, let's say, Coster, even though he's running for governor? Uh, I mean, is it become a broader? I'm curious, and especially depending on, since it looks like, I mean, Trump's going to be at the top of your party's ticket, just kind of how you see it. 
Well, I tell you what, whoever the Democrat nominee is, I will still be the only candidate who is not a professional politician. I mean, of the four of us currently in this race, the other three have spent their life in politics in one way or another, and I have not. And that's not going to change. I mean, my basic message is this. We need to have a constitutional lawyer who actually wants to do the job of the office in office, and that's what I'm going to run as, whether whoever, whether it's Jake Zimmerman or Teresa Hensley or whomever. If you win, uh, wouldn't you become a professional politician? Well, I hope I would continue to be what I am now, which is a, a constitutional lawyer doing the job. So uh, this is, you know, my first time, not only my first time uh, uh, seeking a statewide office, but any office. I've never run for anything before. So it's been, a, it's been a great learning experience, but I think we really are at a critical turning point in our country's history, and, and that's why I decided to run. What's the biggest thing you've learned so far? I think that people are are very, very hopeful that things can be different. You hear a lot about the anger out there, and people are angry, and I think rightly so. But also, one of the things I repeatedly emphasize is, look, Missouri can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And we've been part of the problem because of our leadership for the last 10 years. We can be part of the solution. And I think people want that. They know that we can do better. They know we should do better. They know we should have clean and honest government. They know we should have a government that stands up for them and not for special interests, that fights back against Washington. They know it can be done and i say let's let's do it yeah one real real quick question uh with the missouri governor's race on the republican side sucking up so much oxygen and so much campaign contributions um as you and schaefer go into the final two-month sprint um how do you get people let's say while you're putting up your tv ads or whatever to focus on you mm -hmm. And not get confused about who's running for what. Well, I think I have a, a profile in this election that nobody else has, and, and that is I haven't been in politics, and I've been to court to fight the Obama administration, and I've won. And that's what we need in the next attorney general. We need somebody who's going to stand up for our constitutional rights and liberties in the people of Missouri and win. I've done that. Nobody else has done that. And it happens to be the most important thing we need in the next attorney general. We are out of time. Thank you very much for joining us in St. Louis. I will make the same offer as I have for the lieutenant governor candidates and the treasurer candidates. Whoever wins this primary can come back during the general election and be on our show again. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would we follow you on Twitter? I am at Holly Moe, and my website is joshholly, H-A-W-L-E-Y.com. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>